0: Thank you, Taylor, and thank you, Caleb, for uh, leading us in our worship this morning through song. And I'd ask you to take your Bibles, please, or your phones, and go to Romans chapter 1. That's where we're going to start this morning. And the songs this morning have definitely uh, tied in with the message that the Lord has uh, prepared in my heart, uh, and hopefully for you all as well today in God's Word. We're going to start in Romans chapter 1. And then we're going to move to another passage of Scripture. And what I want us to do uh, this morning, and I realize the lighting is not real good when I'm down front here, so and maybe that's a good thing, but again, there was just such a, a great gulf fixed between us, I thought it would be appropriate to move down this way. But what I want us to do uh, this morning is answer the question, what is God's revelation to the believer And in asking that question, just to set you at ease, I'm not saying that we're going to go through the whole counsel of God this morning of the full revelation of God, but how do we as believers relate to what God has revealed to us as His children? And as I said, I want to start in Romans chapter 1 to make a contrast. And that contrast is how the unbelieving world relates to God's revelation. So let's look if we would at uh, three or four verses here in Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18 where we read, "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Having understood by the, have, "...being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Verse 21 goes on to say, "...because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened." It's no wonder that in our culture today we see a lot of confusion... And corruption, and blasphemy, idolatry, uh, vanity, immoral, in, in, immorality when we read this passage of Scripture. Uh, our culture is this way because rebellion against God runs deep in the head and the heart of the unregenerated uh, individual. And this human sinfulness suppresses, verse 18 tells us, the truth that God has revealed to all of us. And that leads to vain thinking and a foolish and darkened heart. And this passage goes on to talk about the exchanges that the unbelieving individual makes. Exchanging the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creation. Exchanging truth, the truth, for a lie or the lie. Um, Exchanging what God has to say about marriage and uh, human sexuality for immorality. That's what happens as a result of this. But the, 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 the people of this world, of course, are not without hope. And that's where Paul actually begins this section in Romans chapter 1. If you look back at verse 16, Paul makes this declaration that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation, to deliverance from these things that he describes, to everyone who believes. And it's there that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and the just shall live by faith. So this is how the natural person, apart from Christ, interacts with or responds to God's revelation. But what about the believer? How do those of us who've experienced regeneration respond to God's revelation? What is God's revelation to us? Go, if you would, to Psalm 19. And we're going to spend our time in Psalm 19 this morning to answer that question. I think Psalm 19 gives us a beautiful answer to this question. It explains how the believer responds to or relates to God's Revelation. Let's start by reading the first six verses of this psalm. David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech, no language, where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In, him, in them hath He set a tabernacle for the sun. Which is as, a, is, is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run his race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof, from the sun. I think of these first six verses, we see that creation for the believer reveals God's glory, and to the believer, this revelation. I think this passage teaches us, is knowledge to be applied. Look at the verbs in the first two verses of this psalm. Declare in verse 1. Show or proclaim in verse 1. Utter or to pour out in verse 2. Show or to reveal in verse 2. The heavens and the daytime and nighttime skies teach us about our God and about His glory. The word declare in verse 1 is more than a simple Uh, telling or declaration. It has the idea of enumerating or tallying. It's used um, elsewhere. It's translated elsewhere in our English Bible, the Hebrew word in Genesis chapter 1 of numbering the stars. So we can think of it this way. God is helping us to score His glory by what He's put in the sky and the universe beyond it. Just think about that. Think about how God has ordained the sky, and the universe beyond with billions of stars. Astronomers estimate that our own galaxy, the Milky Way, has between 100 billion and 400 billion stars. That's almost incomprehensible. When's the last time any one of us made a star? Impossible for us to do. Every star and planet in this galaxy and in the universe beyond helps us to tally God's infinite power, His glory, or His weightiness. In verse 1, the end of verse 1, tells us that these heavenly stars, these heavenly masses are merely the work of His hands. The mass of the earth is 6,000 trillion tons. I don't think even Chevy or Dodge could build a truck big enough to pull something like that. And yet the sun can contain 1.3 million Earths. But I think as most of us know, the sun in our galaxy is a relatively small planet, or small, small star. The star VY Canis Majoris is 3 billion times the size of the sun. The heavens declare the glory of God. But what does this knowledge, what knowledge does God give us through this revelation of his creation in the heavens? Well, the end of verse 4 through verse 6 gives us a specific example of that. Let's read that again. The end of verse 4. In them God has set a tabernacle for the sun or a tent, a dwelling place for the sun in the sky which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run his race, His going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit to the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Nothing on this planet resides outside the physical reign of the sun, the end of verse 6 tells us. And so it is with God. When we think of the sun and its rule over the day, we should be reminded that God is sovereign. And nothing in his world lives outside of his reign in our lives. That's knowledge to apply from God's revelation. God used the starry constellations to remind Job of his sovereign power and to remind Job that he's not God. Job 38, we read this questions that God asked Job can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazaroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children, speaking of these constellations in the sky? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that may may go and say to you, here we are. Nobody can do that but God. Isaiah uses the stars to remind us that God's to remind God's people of His immense power. In Isaiah 40, we read this, "...to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like Him," says the Holy One. "...lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these?" referring to the stars. "...he who brings brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might, and because He is strong in power, not one is missing." And again, in the book of Job, uh, God uses the stars to describe His transcendence. In Job 22, we read this, Is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are? God is beyond even the reach of them. What's the point behind all this? Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And this is knowledge for the believer to apply to life. Perhaps in the last couple of days you've seen some of the news of the James Webb Space Telescope. Has anybody been following any of that? Several of you have. Absolutely. This telescope I read was decades in the the making and was launched back in December. And it's now sending back stunning images that have never been seen of God's universe. I was talking to Bill Lovegrove briefly this morning, and he said astronomers are comparing the pictures from or images from other um, telescopes with the new ones coming out from this Webb Space uh, Telescope, and they truly are amazing to see. Well, at a news conference yesterday, the NASA director, Bill Nelson, quoted the uh, astronomer Carl Sagan, who said, somewhere, something incredible is waiting to be known. Well, that's what the secularist says when the secularist gazes into heaven. He speculates somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known. But the believer's response when we gaze into heaven is totally different. It's the beginning of verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of of God God is revealing himself. The hymnist got it right in, in, in writing, Heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Andrew Wilson in his book, God of All Things, makes this point about the incomprehensible number of galaxies and stars that exist in God's creation. He writes this, Sometimes people wonder why God created them all, or even whether their sheer number casts doubt on his existence. Why, if God is really so committed to the people who bear his image, would he bother making so many galaxies which have nothing to do with us and which we could not even see until a few years ago? Well, Wilson continues in answering his question, I can think of all sorts of answers to that to humble us, to give us a taste of the infinite, to help us understand phrases like far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, Ephesians 3.20, and another phrase, unsearchable riches, Ephesians three eight, or simply to give Him the joy of making them all, but occasionally I wonder whether He did it for the fun of seeing our jaws fall open when we read Genesis 1.16. He also created the stars. That's what Genesis 1.16 says. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And He also made the stars. That's our God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Spurgeon said of this passage, specifically of verse 2, The lesson of the day and night is one which it were well if all men learned. It should be among our day thoughts and night thoughts to remember the flight of time, the changed character of earthly things, the brevity of both joy and sorrow, the preciousness of life, our utter powerlessness to recall hours once flown. You younger folks out there cannot relate to that one as much as some of the rest of us can right now. And the irresistible approach of eternity. Day bids us labor. Night reminds us to prepare for our last home. Day bids us work for God. And night invites us to rest in Him. Day bids us look for the endless day. And night warns us to escape from everlasting night. So when we take time to observe God's created order through our regenerated eyes that God has given to us, even in this fallen world, we glean knowledge that's been revealed by God. Knowledge of His glory that can be applied to life. Because Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Creation reveals God's glory, and to the believer that's knowledge to be applied. But this psalm continues. Let's look at verses 7-7. Through 11, and we see another amazing part of God's revelation to us. Verse 7 reads The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. David is telling us here that Scripture reveals to us God's will and God's character. And to the believer, as verse 10 tells us, this is treasure to be desired. We have in verses 7 through 9 six different synonyms or names that David uses to describe God's Word and then it's followed up with a characteristic and then a result or a benefit. And in verse 11, he tells us that God's revelation, God's Word protects us from danger. And when we obey God's Word, when we submit to God's will, we find blessing in our lives as well. Now, David tells us that that the greatest needs of life are met through His Word. And, and, and God's Word does that with precision and with authority. And that's where our six different descriptions in verses 7 through 9 um, come out to us. And I won't take the time to go through each one of them uh, this morning, but I would encourage you to study them out um, on your own. Names given to us that describe God's Word and then a characteristic or an attribute of that Word and then what that Word does in our lives. But I'd like to focus on just one this morning and that is the end of verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony or truth that is attested by God Himself. Think about that. Think about how flawed. Think about how deceptive Human testimony can be, but God's testimony is truth that has been attested by God Himself. It is sure, or it is firm, and has been affirmed. And it makes wise. It makes the simple wise. It gives us the skill that we need to live. Uh, last week at at our house, I had. Um, I know this is controversial here on this campus because sometimes trees have to come down. I had to have a couple of massive oak trees come down at my house uh, last week as well. I didn't enjoy paying for that, but it needed to be done. And one in the backyard especially, which was a beautiful tree, but it was damaged. It had a gash in it that was probably 15 or 20 feet long, and it was leaning toward the house. So I've been told by many people it's only a matter of time. So that we had those trees uh, taken down, and... Of course, you know, you, it's like painting a room in a house. Once you take down a couple of trees, you find other things that need to be done. So I found several limbs that needed to be trimmed as well. Uh, and these are really from my trees in my neighbor's yards that were coming over into, into my yard. Uh, I have beautiful trees in my yard. My neighbors have ugly trees. in their yard. They're not listening. Uh, magnolia trees, uh, pine trees. I'm sorry if I've offended those who who may like those kinds of trees. So I did what every good homeowner does on a Saturday morning when you have a job like that. I went to Home Depot and I rented a pole saw. Um, so that was, my son and I were having fun out there. There was one uh, there was one limb, a lot of these were over our driveway and then another portion was in our backyard over a fence. So in the front yard, we were working on those by the driveway and there was one that was pretty significant. And I said to, I said to my son, Andrew, I said, do you think that one's too big for us? And he said, oh no, dad. Well, I, got, I have like a 9 or 10 foot A-frame ladder, so I got up in the ladder with the pole saw. You know, a pole saw is like 12 or 15 feet long, chainsaw on the end of it. So I started cutting this one limb, and my son was like, Oh, I thought you meant the other one over there. I said, Well, it's too late now. We're halfway through this one. So I'm going to cut. I'm gonna have to cut through that one. so, praise the Lord, that limb came down, and it came down. It was probably about 20 feet in the air, and... Uh, Nothing was damaged, including human beings in the, in the doing of that. So then we moved into the backyard, and uh, we were getting to the very end. I probably had about two or three left, and I was, again, I was up in my ladder. Uh, I'm not advocating this approach, just to put that disclaimer uh, on everything. Uh, but I was up on the ladder with about two or three left to go, and then all of a sudden, you know, imagine I'm standing up, almost. I was probably on the second or third rung from the top, This is about a nine-foot ladder. And all of a sudden, I felt the ladder going this way. And, of course, I'm going to compensate and go this way. And, you know, we've all experienced that before, right? And we rebalance it. Well, guess what? This time, there was no rebalancing. So the ladder goes this way toward my neighbor's fence. Next thing I know, I am on the ground. And if you want to come examine my thumb, that was the worst damage that was done through the whole process, uh, praise the Lord. But what, what happened in that situation? It was the ground, and I did not realize it. The ground was not firm. The legs of the ladder sunk into the ground, and that ground literally and figuratively let me down in a big, big way. What a contrast... To God's Word. God's Word, God's testimony to us will never fail. It will never let us down. It will take us in our simplicity, our foolishness, and it will make us wise. That is God's revelation to the believer. Following these descriptions that we read in verses 7 through 9... David concludes in verse 10, which we've already read, but let's read it again. More to be desired are they or God's word than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. I think we all understand the image of gold and its value to us, but what of honey and the honeycomb? And to to help us understand this, again I want to quote from Andrew Wilson's book, God of All Things, and he gives this really, I think, fascinating and helpful description of honey. He says this, Honey is astonishing. If I were to share a potluck meal with Shakespeare, Genghis Khan, Muhammad, Cleopatra, Queen Esther, Tutankhamun, and Abraham, I and mean, what a gathering that would be, we would be baffled or disgusted by many of the contributions, but we would all come together over the golden jar in the middle. Honey lasts through the centuries. Not just metaphorically, but literally. It never goes out of date. So if an enterprising archaeologist were to find a sealed pot of centuries-old honey in a cave somewhere, you would be able to spread it on your muffin for tea. And both of these things are true because the truly remarkable thing about it, honey is unprocessed. In our world, virtually everything we eat is treated, sterilized, cooked or pasteurized and then combined with other things to make it more palatable. But honey is almost unique in having no need for additives, flavorings or preservatives. It is luxuriously sweet and delicious without even trying. And that is God's Word. That is God's revelation. His written revelation to the believer. It is a treasure to be desired. So creation reveals God's glory, and that's knowledge for us to apply. Scripture reveals God's will and and the very character of God, and that's treasure for us to desire. And I think this psalm concludes with anticipation of God's most supreme revelation of himself, and that is the person of Christ. David ends this psalm with a prayer. And some would say it's actually a lament about his sinfulness. He seeks God's mercy for both known and unknown sins. If you would, look at verses 12 and 13. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. And then David concludes in verse 14 with a familiar prayer, I think, to each one of us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. My strength in my Redeemer. Notice the the language of sacrifice that is in that last verse. Acceptable and Redeemer. David is acknowledging his need for God's deliverance, for God's mercy because of his propensity to sin. He's praying that in in the core of his very being, his meditations, his thinking, and the words of his mouth, that he would find acceptance before a holy God. While this certainly is not an explicit messianic prophecy, I do hear in this closing prayer an anticipation for God's supreme revelation in the person of Christ. Think if you would, and perhaps maybe later today, go to the opening verses in Hebrews chapter 1 that tell us about Jesus and our Messiah. That He is the exact image of God. He is the perfect revelation of who God is. And He is the outpouring of mercy from God to purge us from our sins. The kinds of sins that David describes in verses 12 and 13. So I think it's in this sense that Jesus reveals to us God's heart. And for the believer, that's mercy to be received. So in this psalm, I think we have a beautiful picture of what God's revelation is to each of us as believers. In creation, we see God's glory, and therefore we have knowledge to apply to everyday life. In God's Word, we see God's will revealed to us, and we have a treasure to desire. And in Jesus, we see God's heart. And through Jesus, we have mercy that is available for us to receive, and certainly not because we deserve that. So let me close with, I think, three specific ways that we could apply these truths to our lives. I'd encourage each one of us to pay attention to God's creation and the display of His glory through that creation. Jesus Himself used things as simple as birds and flowers to teach us important lessons about our relationship with our Heavenly Father that He sovereignly cares for each one of His image bearers. So pay attention to God's creation. And see His glory revealed. Secondly, ask God to give you a heart that would treasure His Word. We each need to pray that prayer. We have our own desires that pull us away from God and what He's revealed to us through His Word. But if we will ask Him, if we will delight in Him, He will give us the desires of our heart. We should ask Him for a heart that delights in understanding who He is and what He's revealed about Himself through His Word. And He's going to answer that prayer if we pray that. And then finally, number three, I would just encourage each one of us to thank God for the daily mercy that's available to us through Christ as we seek to walk with our God each day. The revelation of God to the believer is an incredible blessing in contrast to how the unbeliever suppresses and denies this revelation. May God do a work in our hearts through what He's revealed to us. Father, we thank you for being the great God that you are. And we thank you that you are a God who exists and is not silent. You have spoken and you have created us in such a way that we can understand and see your revelation. And through regeneration, we can have that relationship with you that you would desire us to have. Thank you for being a good and a great God. In Christ's name, amen.